Wuhan virus a bioweapon? Did China start developing this virus in 2016? Was the aim to create the deadliest coronavirus ever? Was the intention to infect as many people as possible? Was a secret program being carried out in the Wuhan lab? And was it China's deadly experiment that killed 7 million people around the world and left you and me scarred for life? Tonight, we are coming to you not just with questions, but answers. Answers that some of you may not be ready for, but answers that are required to finally start the long due process of bringing the culprits to justice. These answers are based on a detailed investigative report by the Sunday Times. One investigator told the paper, and I'm quoting, it has become increasingly clear that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was involved in the creation, promulgation, and cover-up of the COVID-19 pandemic. Note those words, creation, promulgation, and cover-up. That is what Xi Jinping's China is being accused of. Our cover story tonight begins in the Wuhan lab, or the infamous and notorious Wuhan Institute of Virology. This report says that in the lead up to the pandemic, scientists in Wuhan were combining the world's most deadly coronaviruses. A coronavirus refers to a group of RNA viruses that can cause respiratory illness in human beings. Most of you already know this. So the question you should be asking is, what was the need for such an experiment? Was China trying to create a bioweapon? There is no ruling this out because the Wuhan scientists were not alone in the experiment. Accompanying them were Chinese military personnel in lab coats. You heard that right. What job do they have in a science lab? Unless, of course, they are working on a combined confidential bioweapon project. Five years before the pandemic started, scientists in the Chinese military wrote a paper. That paper predicted a third world war, not any ordinary war, but one where viruses serve as bioweapons. The paper talks about coronaviruses, quote-unquote, heralding a new era of genetic weapons. And it goes on to say how these weapons can be unleashed in a way never seen before. Well, the Wuhan virus did unleash a once-in-a-lifetime crisis. And these Chinese scientists knew this because they were likely already working on weaponizing coronaviruses. Let me just read out what the Sunday Times published. Investigators who scrutinize top-secret intercepted communications and scientific research believe Chinese scientists were running a covert project of dangerous experiments which caused a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and started the COVID-19 outbreak. You see, the ball was set rolling in 2003. That is when the Wuhan lab began experimenting with SARS and the origin of SARS. Soon, the lab started hunting for coronaviruses in China's many bat caves, and experimenting with these dangerous viruses. None of this was safe. And the lab knew it. 
but its scientists justify toying with coronaviruses. How? Well, they said the risk was worth it because their work may help develop vaccines for coronaviruses. Those vaccines never came. But in the year 2016, people in Yunnan province started falling sick. They had symptoms similar to SARS. Many of these people died. The scientists realized these people were infected with a new type of coronavirus. And what did they do? They hid this critical and deadly information from people. Instead, samples from the multiple coronaviruses found in Yunnan were carried to the Wuhan lab. The report says these very viruses are now recognized as the only members of COVID-19's immediate family known to have been in existence pre-pandemic. Basically, they could possibly be viruses that mutated into COVID-19. A classified program reportedly began after Yunnan to make the virus found there more infectious to human beings. And cut to 2019, people in Wuhan started falling sick. What had happened in the lead up to the outbreak? In November 2019, researchers working in this program started falling sick with symptoms eerily similar to COVID-19. They were taken to the hospital. Soon, others in Wuhan started falling sick. People started dying. Cut to March 2020, Wuhan virus was declared a pandemic. Seven million people lost their lives. And this, by the way, is just the official number. Were they killed by China's bioweapon? Were they victims of China's dangerous craft? Does China have blood on its hands? And how long before China is made to pay for the pandemic? It's been almost four years and it's time you put pressure on those in power to hashtag make China pay. Now last year, Chinese President Xi Jinping had expressed his desire to purchase oil from Saudi in Chinese Yuan, a move that could weaken the US dollar's global dominance in the long run. Saudi hopes that in the coming years, Chinese investors will explore and find more opportunities for further investments in the Arab world. It also hopes to ratify the free trade deal between China and Saudi Arabia that has been ongoing since 2004. Now for more on this, we were earlier joined from Washington DC by retired Colonel Rich Alzena, a renowned geopolitical analyst with additional details on the story. Take a look. Is the axis of evil. The truth is that we have multiple partners and multiple competitors in every region of the world, in East Asia and South Asia and uh, in the Middle East as well. So. When uh, President Biden came in saying that uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman Saudi Arabia was a pariah and that we were going to use unilateral power to marginalize him and change his behavior, this was sort of the, an echo of the uh, previous era in which the United States had unilateral power and the, the ability to just sort of uh, 
peremptorily say that a country should do X or Y. That's not the world we're in right now. The world we're in is very competitive. It's multi-axial. Saudi Arabia is a, a, a premium case of this in which not just this year, but even last year when they were uh, ignoring Biden's uh, requests to increase oil production to meet U.S. Uh, price uh, and targets. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. So that we saw again with uh, the Iran-Saudi reconciliation or rapprochement that was uh, brokered by Beijing and now this latest meeting in which the, the Saudi officials say, yes, we, you know, we're, we're not taking sides in this. A perfect example of the fact that Saudi Arabia, like many countries in the region, has adapted to multipolarity. The question is whether the United States has or not. Uh, right, Colonel Azam, thank you so much for that. Now, just on that note, for better clarity, in March, Saudi Aramco announced two major deals to raise its multi-billion dollar investment in China. Now, with growing Saudi Arabia and China ties, how do you think that this is being viewed in Washington? Well, I think Washington is very internally focused right now. Uh, we are a year and uh, a couple of months out from a major election internally, so uh, the fact that uh, any of our international partners does X or Y is not uh, attracting that much uh, attention, to be honest with you. I think in general there's a perception in Washington that the Biden administration has misplayed Saudi Arabia, and uh, certainly on the Republican side of the aisle, and I'm in full transparency, I, I, I come from the conservative side of the political spectrum in the U.S., there's this idea that by being very preachy, yeah, uh, by be, being very preachy early in the administration, that the Biden team uh, sort of missed some opportunities with Saudi Arabia, and yet it's still a competitive game. So I would say that uh, it's not a view that Saudi Arabia has flipped somehow and has become a pro-China country. It's just the idea that look, we have to compete when it comes to energy, when it comes to security, when it comes to geopolitical rivalry. The United States needs to do a better job of convincing countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Turkey uh, that we are their friends and that we have more to offer than, uh, than China or Russia. And right now, that's really not the case. Right, right now, it seems like a confused message from Washington. Right, Colonel. We'll, of course, be tracking the shifting equations in the West Asia. But thank you so much for joining us from Beyond and sharing your insights with us on this. Thanks very Moving much. Moving on to other global stories we're tracking on Beyond this morning. But there seems to be no end to the long-standing diplomatic tensions between U.S. and China. The White House on Sunday revealed that China has allegedly been operating an intelligence unit in Cuba for a few years, which it upgraded in 2019. The comments by a White House official come amid reports that Beijing was planning to set up a spy base on the island, which is located just off the American shores. However, both the U.S. and the Cuban governments cast strong doubt on this very report. He further elaborated that the issue predates to Joe Biden's presidency and is not a new development. China has been spying from Cuba for some time and it is well documented in the intelligence record. He said that the previous government did not make much effort in this regard, despite being aware about this issue. Meanwhile, the Chinese officials have responded to these claims and accused the U.S. of spreading rumors with slander. The Cuban wise foreign minister also dismissed the U.S. media reports as totally mendacious and called it a U.S. fabrication meant to justify Washington's decades-old economic embargo against the island. The developments come a week before U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China on June 18th. 
His visit marks the end to long-delayed diplomatic talks between the two superpowers. Now, tensions between U.S. and China have been at an all-time high, marking the worst phase of diplomatic fallout between the two nations. In February, Washington had cancelled an official visit to Beijing over a suspected Chinese spy balloon that reportedly flew over the United States of America. In May, the leaders of the G7 bloc led by the U.S. had unanimously agreed to counter the economic and military coercion, indirectly targeting China. Earlier last week, U.S.-China tensions reached an all-time high again when in a risky incident, the warships of both the countries escaped and I'm quoting here, dangerous interaction in the Taiwan Strait. The U.S. has increased its presence in the Indo-Pacific region, particularly Taiwan. This comes in response to China's aggressive expansion into its neighboring regions. For more on this, we were earlier joined by foreign policy analyst Edward P. Joseph from Washington, D.C. This is what he had to say. Take a listen. I think your assessment is correct uh, that had the visit gone forward at that time that it was originally scheduled, that the visit of Secretary of State Blinken, uh, I, I think that the uh, uh, chances of some type of reduction in tensions between the United States and China would, they, the possibilities would have been improved. We've seen, you're absolutely right, the visit, the three-day lavish visit of uh, President Xi to uh, Moscow, visiting with President Putin, who's been increasingly isolated and is clinging uh, uh, to a, a desperate hold on Ukraine after his unprovoked invasion of the country, a catastrophic uh, miscalculation on the part of President Putin. That type of support, these type of conditions have aggravated relations. On the other hand, we shouldn't be completely pessimistic here. Let's remember, last month, uh, the uh, very well-known head of the uh, CIA, William Burns, a, a longtime American diplomat, had a visit to China. Uh, and, and this visit would not have taken place if there were not high-level desire in the part in both Beijing and in Washington to, to try to advance and reduce tensions. And of course, to answer your first question, could it get worse? Of course, it can always get worse. You mentioned this uh, close brush in the South China Sea between uh, naval vessels of uh, the U.S. and China. Obviously, the the, it, this situation could get much worse if there's any type of a military confrontation. And we know, of course, that Taiwan, China's uh, aims and designs on uh, Taiwan, an independent uh, state, uh, has uh, aggravated uh, the situation and is lurking. Over the past one year, several nuclear powers, especially China, have expanded their arsenal. A report has claimed that a rise has been observed in the nuclear stockpile of these nations. This comes as atomic powers continue to modernize their weapons owing to rising geopolitical tensions. This report has been published by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. It mentions about an uptick in the nuclear inventory of certain nations. This mostly refers to the stockpile which these countries can use for assembling nukes in case the need arises. Though a decline has been observed in the total amount of warheads of nuclear powers, namely Britain, China, France, India, Israel, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia 
and the United States. But nuclear stocks of some of these nations have increased. The cumulative increase in stockpile stands at 86 warheads. China is at the forefront of this uptick and has raised its stocks from 350 in last year to 410 this year. Right after it, it is its ally, Russia, which has seen a growth of 11 warheads. Other nations which have been mentioned in the report include India, Pakistan and North Korea. China in particular, uh, we register a significant increase in the number of uh, nuclear warheads over the past uh, year, up from 350 warheads to 410. Now, compared to the USA and Russia, that have about 5,000 each in their inventories, that's very small. But the increase is there. As for experts, diplomatic efforts on nuclear arms control and disarmament have suffered setbacks following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. An example of this can be Moscow announcing its withdrawal from a treaty with the U.S. on limiting the amount of nuclear warheads. China, too, has been locked in disputes in the Indo-Pacific region, especially in the South China Sea. This has threatened the results achieved over the decades in limiting the usage of weapons of mass destruction. The U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's visit to Saudi Arabia last week may not have been that fruitful for Washington as Saudi is now cozying up to China to strengthen bilateral and economic ties. This comes days after Blinken's visit to Riyadh stabilized the strained relationship between Washington and Riyadh. Saudi Arabia's diplomatic relations with the United States previously went through a rough patch when U.S. intelligence claimed that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a fierce critic of his government. At the Saudi-China business conference on Sunday, Saudi Minister of Energy Prince Abdulaziz expressed that Riyadh will go wherever there is business opportunity. Earlier in March, Saudi's state oil giant Saudi Aramco signed two major deals with China. It raised multi-billion dollar investments and became China's biggest provider of crude oil. At the Sunday's conference, Saudi finance minister said that China is Arab world's largest trade partner. The volume of trade exchange between Riyadh and Beijing had reached a record $106 billion in 2022. Last year, Chinese President Xi Jinping had expressed his desire to purchase oil from Saudi in Chinese Yuan, a move that could weaken the US dollar's global dominance in the long run. Saudi hopes that in the coming years, Chinese investors will explore and find more opportunities for further investments in the Arab world. It also hopes to ratify the free trade deal between China and Saudi Arabia that has been ongoing since 2004.
Shifting focus now to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Saudi Arabia last week may not have been that fruitful for Washington. This since Saudi seems to be cozying up to China to strengthen bilateral and economic ties. This comes days after Blinken's visit to Riyadh to stabilize the strained relationship between Washington and Riyadh. Saudi Arabia's diplomatic relations with the United States previously went through a rough patch when U.S. intelligence claimed that the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, approved the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was a fierce critic of his government. At the Saudi-China business conference on Sunday, Saudi Minister of Energy, Prince Abdulaziz, had expressed that Riyadh will go wherever there is business opportunity. Earlier in March, Saudi's state oil giant, Saudi Aramco, signed two major deals with China. It raised multi-billion dollar investments and became China's biggest provider of crude oil. People were killed and 23 injured in the Russian shelling on a rescue boat evacuating civilians from the Kherson region on Sunday. Now, Ukraine has already initiated its Operation Silence, where it's urging citizens to not share any counter-offensive related information. Just last week, Putin said that the Ukrainian counter-offensive is a failure, while it shared images and videos of destroyed American and German-made vehicles and tanks. Meanwhile, Ukraine's armed forces general staff added that 25 battles raged in the previous 24 hours near Bakhmut. This is a region in Donetsk region. And the latest offense comes after the major destruction of Nova Katakov Dam, and that caused widespread flooding in the Kursor region. Both the sides have blamed each other for the damage, and recent drone footage show that floodwaters have begun to subside in Kursor, but most of the city is still underwater. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said that an investigation by the International Criminal Court on the breach of the Kakovka Dam has been started. Reports say that the death toll after the incident has risen to 14 due to the dam breach. Meanwhile, Russia's Defense Ministry has signed a contract with the Yakhmut Group of Chechen Special Forces after Wagner Chief Yevgeny Prigozhin refused to sign the deal. To decode these developments further, joining us on this broadcast is Olena Tregov. She is the Secretary General of the Independent Defense Anti-Corruption Committee from Kiev. Welcome to the broadcast, Olena. Hello. Now, the much-awaited counter-offensive has already begun. Russia has expertly rubbished it, of course. But before we dwell into the specifics, I want to ask you a broader question. How do you see the counteroffensive panning out for both sides? Well, I think that Ukraine has chosen strategy to do it uh, not uh, like in one day, but to do an incremental approach. And Ukraine uh, was beginning this counteroffensive uh, weeks ago by different operations, uh, uh, hybrid operations. And... Uh, uh, those are like uh, different uh, staging operations and uh, right now yes right now uh, it looks like ukraine is advancing but uh, in a more kind of uh, slow and uh, careful way uh, because uh, ukraine doesn't want to lose uh, a lot of uh, people a counter offensive is a very 
difficult uh, thing to do because Russians had enough time to, um, you know, mine their territory, to, to uh, build defense lines uh, in occupied territory. It is very complex, and therefore Ukraine is trying to do it in a smart way. Right, now Ukraine is also pushing for Operation Silence, which basically is to keep the counter-offensive in wraps. But how far do you think this will be possible, given that since the invasion started, we have been seeing a flood of information and misinformation coming from both the sides? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think that um, the fact that uh, Ukrainian uh, military leadership, political leadership, they are not, uh, uh, of course, announcing different uh, steps in our counteroffensive, uh, it's, it's absolutely uh, normal because this is war. And in war, uh, the way you attack the enemy, you do it without any warning. And uh, you can win only if the enemy is not expecting what you are doing. So it is absolutely normal. And I think uh, media should not expect to receive any uh, information if their operation is still ongoing. After Afterwards, we will learn everything and we will understand what really happened. But now I just uh, think that uh, uh, you know, we should not ask uh, too many questions because it's absolutely normal and war is very unpredictable. Nobody knows how the war will go, which way the war goes. Nobody knows. Right, Olena. And it's interesting you mentioned in uh, previously in this broadcast as well that Russia did have a lot of time not just to mine the areas, but it has launched a set of assault uh, against Ukraine in the past few months and now it's Ukraine's time to fight back. How optimistic do you think this will take place and this will become for Ukraine? And also, do you think this will be like a turning chapter of sorts for the entire war? Well, I think that, of course, Ukraine uh, will do the best uh, um, she can to recapture uh, some of the occupied territories. But uh, we have to understand that Ukraine uh, did not uh, receive all the weapons needed for this. Uh, and even though our Western partners, they claim that we do have uh, full preparation, we will uh, be able to assess it only afterwards, because uh, we do not really know uh, what Ukraine has uh, received and what has not. But uh, Ukrainian uh, issue has always been that we uh, needed much more military assistance uh, to repel Russia than we were receiving. And this issue, unfortunately, is uh, uh, still there. Uh, but yet Ukrainian uh, morale is very high and Ukraine, uh, you know, is fighting on their own land. This is our land where Russians came. So, of course, uh, people feel imperative to, you know, to push Russians out of our house. Uh, Russians are destroying not just people, but our nature. Uh, with the dam, right now there is information that they mined one of the chemical plants in eastern Ukraine. The Russians right. do not care because it's not their land. And this is why I think eventually Ukraine will take control over its land. It will take maybe some more time. We, we don't know. Right. If uncertainty still looms over if Ukraine has received the enough amount of arms it needs for a counteroffensive, nevertheless the counteroffensive has already started. So that puts Ukraine in a tricky spot, Olena. But thank you for all those insights and thank you for joining us on this broadcast today. Thank you for having me. announced that its forces have retaken three villages in the eastern region of Donetsk. 
This is the first reported gains of Ukraine's much-anticipated counteroffensive, which Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky confirmed is now underway. Ukrainian forces posted unverified videos that show them hoisting the Ukrainian flag in the village of Blagatne in the Donetsk region and their unit's flag in the adjacent village of Neskuchne. Kiev's deputy defense minister has said that nearby Makaritska was also taken. Moscow has not confirmed the fall of any of these villages. However, it has instead spoken about repelling Ukrainian counteroffensive. At least three people were killed and 23 others injured in the Russian shelling on a rescue boat evacuating civilians from the Kherson region on Sunday. Moscow also said that Kiev had made an unsuccessful attempt to attack a Russian naval ship with six high-speed drone boats in the Black Sea. The Russian vessel was patrolling major natural gas pipelines. Today at about 1.30 Moscow time, the armed forces of Ukraine made an unsuccessful attempt to attack the Black Sea Fleet's ship the Priyazdur, which is performing the task of monitoring the situation and ensuring security along the routes of the Turkish Stream and Blue Stream gas pipelines of the southeastern part of the Black Sea. In the course of repulsing the attack, all boats were destroyed by fire from the standard armament of a Russian ship 300 kilometers southeast of Sevastopol. Ukraine has also claimed that the Russian forces had blown up a smaller hydroelectric dam in the Zaporizhia region following the destruction of the major Novokokovka on Monday, and this caused widespread flooding. Now, the latest dam breach has led to the flooding of both banks of the Makoyali River. However, according to the Ukrainian officials, it has no effect on the counteroffensive. Meanwhile, Zelensky has said that an investigation by the International Criminal Court on the breach of the Kokovka Dam has been started. Reports say that the death toll after the incident has risen to 14 due to the dam breach. The last operating reactor at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has been put into a cold shutdown. Five out of its six reactors have already been put into a state of cold shutdown following the blast. Meanwhile, Russia's paramilitary forces Wagner chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has said that his fighters would not sign any contract with the Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu. This as Defense Minister on Saturday had ordered all volunteer detachments to sign contracts with his ministry by the end of the month. A step it said would increase the effectiveness of the Russian army. ЧВК Вагнер не будет подписывать никаких контрактов с Шойгу. ЧВК Вагнер органично встроена в общую систему. ЧВК Вагнер согласует свои действия с генералами справа, слева, с командирами подразделений. Имеет глубочайшее
Today at about 1.30 Moscow time, the armed forces of Ukraine made an unsuccessful attempt to attack the Black Sea Fleet's ship, the Priyaz Duel, which is performing the task of monitoring the situation and ensuring security along the routes of the Turkish Stream and Blue Stream gas pipeline to the southeastern part of the Black Sea. In the course of repulsing the attack, all boats were destroyed by fire from the standard armament of a Russian ship 300 kilometers southeast of Sevastopol. Ukraine has also claimed that Russian forces had blown up a smaller hydroelectric dam in Zaporizhia region following the destruction of the major Novokhokovka on Monday, which caused widespread flooding. The latest dam breach has led to the flooding of both the banks of the Mokriali River. However, it has no effect on counteroffensive. According to the Ukrainian officials, Meanwhile, 